Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of thought leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on July 20th, 2022. We record this podcast at an interesting time in the markets. While the story in the first half of 2022 was the emergence of persistent and rising inflation, the accelerating pace of monetary tightening, and markets repricing everything, and we mean everything, in response to the rapidly changing landscape, the second half is a different story. As our global CIO Scott Minard said recently, we are starting to see signs that the market has discounted all of the Fed tightening. Today's episode of Macro Markets brings this situation into greater focus. The macro segment features my discussion with Matt Bush, Guggenheim's U.S. economist, who will review the latest CPI and jobs data and sketch out his views on recession timing and possible progression of policy from here. In our markets segment, Justin Takata, Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim's Investment Grade Corporate Desk, will take us on a deep dive into developments in his sector. Later in the episode, we will answer a listener question about our prior episode on fixed income funds and retirement accounts. If any listener wants to send in a question or a comment, just send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. Now, let's begin with our conversation with Matt Bush. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. Now, Matt, the June CPI report showed another upside surprise. Does the higher than expected number change your outlook for where inflation goes from here? And what are some of the other indicators telling us about the path for inflation going forward? There was really nothing encouraging in the June CPI data. It showed inflation accelerating on a sequential basis. It showed incredibly broad base gains. And some of the areas with the highest inflation are areas where inflation tends to be sticky, which means it's going to stay elevated for a while. Uh, this hot CPI number was sort of downplayed a little bit because oil and gas prices have fallen since June. And so we should see lower energy inflation in the next report. But the inflation that we saw in June wasn't just an energy story. We saw acceleration in food prices, in services prices, in rents and even in goods prices, which had previously looked to be improving. Um, and I think particularly problematic is the, the rental inflation aspect. This is one of those sticky categories that's slow moving because of how the BLS collects the data on rental prices. So shelter costs alone are now contributing about three percentage points to annualized monthly inflation, which means even if we get relief everywhere else, we're going to have elevated monthly inflation readings for at least several more months. So all that being said, I think there are still plenty of reasons to expect that inflation will moderate going forward. It's just likely to be slower than many had hoped. Um, so what are those reasons? You know, I mentioned goods prices. Uh, we continue to see improvement in supply chain indicators that we track, things like production backlogs or shipping costs. We're also seeing more and more retailers reporting bloated inventories, which should lead to some price cuts. And then finally, we've seen import prices fall for the last two months, and the strong dollar probably should mean more declines for import prices going forward. On the services side, um, we, we are seeing some indication that weight pressures are cooling, 
and that should help cool down services prices. And then finally, I mentioned the problem of high rental costs, but more timely data from rent price trackers like Zillow show a clear moderation of the last couple of months. And so I think by the end of the year, that should start to show up in the official CPI data. So on balance, we continue to see inflation moving lower over the next several months, but it's probably going to be a slow descent and it will remain far away from what the Fed is targeting. So if that's the case, the Fed obviously uh, will keep its pedal to the metal. Um, and that brings up the question about um, what's going to do the overall economy. So we recently put out a piece highlighting the likelihood of another uh, negative GDP print in the second quarter, uh, which would make for two quarters in a row, um, which is typically a recession indicator. Is the U.S. economy in a recession now? We don't think we're in a recession now. Uh, the data does continue to come in poorly. It still looks like second quarter real GDP growth will come in negative and probably pretty deeply negative at around one and a half percent annualized. But GDP is only one part of what the NBER, who makes the official recession call, looks at. Uh, they look at several different economy-wide indicators to determine recession timing. And our analysis of those indicators suggests that we're not yet at levels previously associated with the recessions. So I don't think we're in a recession right now. But looking at the slowdown we're seeing in a lot of these indicators, we're not too far off from recession. Really, the main reason that we're not in a recession currently in an area that the MBER gives a lot of weight to is the employment situation and especially non-farm payrolls. Uh, we've averaged 375,000 jobs per month over the last three months, which is better than any stretch we, we saw during the last expansion. So it would be really strange to be in a recession now with job growth running this strong. To really get a full-blown recession, you need to see declines in employment that kickstarts the recessionary process where job loss leads to lower income, which leads to lower spending, which leads to more job loss and so on. And we're not there yet. So just a point of reference, the NBER is the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the official body that designates recessions, time over recessions. And it's usually backward looking, right? Exactly. I think on average, the official recession announcement is about 10 months after recession begins. Matt, you, you mentioned before the labor market, um, and we just uh, got the June jobs report. Um, how does all that fit into your view of the jobs market? So on the surface, the June jobs report was a strong report. We saw really strong payrolls growth. We saw the unemployment rate hold steady. But one thing that did catch my eye was a contraction in employment in the household survey, which is an alternative measure of the number of people working. Um, in this report, the month-to-month -month fluctuations are noisier than the payrolls data. But the household employment data isn't revised, and it tends to be a more accurate indicator of economic turning points. And so the worrying thing in the household employment measure was that employment fell by 315,000 in June, and over the last three months has declined by about 350,000. So again, this is volatile data. We shouldn't take this as a definitive signal, but it does add to the signals of impending recession that are starting to pile up. So again, clarifying, the household data is used to calculate the unemployment rate, while the non-farm payrolls is it's a different data set. It's a different data set. It, it's a measure from businesses of how many people are on their payrolls, whereas the household survey directly asks people, do you have a job now? And that's how they calculate employment in that survey. Do they often diverge? Typically, they track pretty closely. 
Um, again, at economic turning points, you tend to see some divergences. Um, so ahead of previous recessions, we saw household employment go negative before payroll growth went negative. But again, there's also times in the past where household employment growth has gone negative and, and the next few months it turned around and it was a false sort of recessionary signal. So we don't have enough data yet to conclude that the decline in household employment is a definitive recession signal. All right, Matt. Now, you mentioned diverging signals. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but how are you thinking right now about the probability of recession? Are we at a turning point? We do think we're at a turning point. We currently are pegging recession probability over the next six months around 40%. So quite elevated, but not yet our base case. Uh, as we move into 2023, that probability goes higher. And so by the middle of next year, we see about a two and three chance of recession. And that's really because the weak incoming data, including the negative GDP growth that we talked about, signals that economic momentum is just pretty anemic right now. And the outlook for consumer spending has been really weakened by high inflation, eroding real incomes, and driving consumer sentiment to all-time lows. You know, one of the big positives for economic growth this year was supposed to be the spending down of all these savings accumulated from fiscal stimulus in 2020 and 2021. But what we've seen this year is that that spending down has been pretty weak, which I think is due to consumers wanting to maintain an elevated savings buffer, given how much uncertainty is out there, and given that consumers are telling us their expectations for economic conditions are getting more and more pessimistic. So it makes sense they'd want to hold higher cash balances. And on top of this worsening outlook for consumers, you add on an ultra-aggressive Federal Reserve, tighter financial conditions that are going to weigh on business investment and on the housing market, and a poor outlook for the broader global economy. And it's going to be difficult to avoid a recession over the next year. So this is counter then to most ordinary inflationary behavior or behavior in an inflationary environment where you'll buy today because you expect prices to go higher in the future. But that's not really happening? It's not happening. And that's a good thing from the perspective of longer term inflation staying well anchored. Consumers seem to have gotten the message from the Federal Reserve that they will do whatever it takes to get inflation down. And so rather than this high inflation causing expectations of further inflation, it's really causing expectations of higher unemployment and job loss and worse economic conditions. And so because of that, you're seeing uh, consumers want to hold these elevated savings. So let's game out the Fed's process from here. We have inflation, as you've described, that is high and will probably remain higher than the Fed's target for a while, even if it declines. Uh, but we also have a worsening economic outlook and the labor market is possibly softening. So how does the Fed balance these concerns between inflation fighting on the one hand and keeping uh, the economic growth going on the other? Right now, I don't think it's much of a balance from the Fed's perspective. Over the past several months, the Fed has really made a big pivot and been pretty direct about what is going to drive policy going forward, and that is inflation. Um, they put out a report to Congress last month, and they had a line that their commitment to restoring price stability is unconditional, meaning they'll do whatever it takes to get inflation down, even if it means causing a recession. 
And what you're seeing in a lot of Fed speeches now is a justification for this stance, which says that inflation has gotten high enough, it's gone on long enough, where we now risk letting it get entrenched and letting inflation expectations become unanchored, which would take years of restrictive policy to get under control, as we saw in the 70s and 80s. So in their view, it's, it's better to risk overdoing it now with rate hikes to ensure that expectations stay anchored. And furthermore, you know, this focus on inflation is going to be actual realized inflation, not the outlook for inflation based on forecasts. Um, given the mistakes that they've made over the past year or so of seeing inflation as transitory, the Fed is now saying they need to see actual progress in the officially reported inflation data before they consider downshifting rate hikes, which means they're going to be looking in the rearview mirror on inflation, even as risks of recession continue to rise. To put you on the spot again, Matt, uh, there are many possible courses of action from here and probably all sorts of contingencies and caveats that you will uh, provide for this answer. But what do you think is is a likely outcome for the path of rate hikes between now and let's say the end of 2024? Yeah, I think the, the past year of trying to forecast Fed policy should make any economist humble. But you know, given our view that inflation will stay elevated for several more months, we expect uh, more aggressive Fed hikes in the near term. Um, so a 75 basis point hike in July, and then a 50 basis point hike both in September and November, and then another 25 basis points in December. And that takes the Fed funds rate above 3.5%, uh, so well into restrictive territory. We think by the end of the year, we should see more progress on inflation for the reasons I mentioned and clearer signs that a recession is coming if it hasn't already started. Um, and so given some progress on the inflation front, I think they'll likely shift to a more forward-looking view and emphasize that the deteriorating economic outlook should lead to lower inflation. Uh, and we think at that point they'll be done with rate hikes. So getting into 2023 and beyond, we think as a recession takes hold, they'll be reducing rates probably gradually at first, slower than we saw in prior cycles, because they're going to remain concerned about inflation, remain concerned about political criticism that they you know, potentially are restoking the inflation fire. But by 2024, we should have rates almost back at zero, as by then inflation will clearly be a problem of the past and the economy will still be in a weak spot. But hypothetically, if the economy is close to or in recession, but the inflation rate is still elevated, let's say 4% or higher, what would the Fed's mindset be? Their mindset would be they need to do whatever it takes to get inflation down. Um, and again, they're going to be focused on actual realized progress on inflation. And so I think it's going to take either a big slowdown in inflation or a massive deterioration in the economic outlook or some sort of financial accident for the Fed to pivot their policy. We focused on the United States in all of our discussion today, but uh, how does what's happening in the U.S. fit in within the global picture and vice versa? I painted a pretty pessimistic outlook for the U.S., but it's probably even worse for most major economies internationally. Uh, in Europe, they're dealing with an energy crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine, and now they have to contend with widening government bond spreads in the periphery, which is being exacerbated by a political crisis in Italy. So it looks like they're heading into a fairly deep and severe recession in Europe. 
Uh, in China, we just saw second quarter GDP contract at a 10% annualized rate due to COVID lockdowns. And we think growth there is going to remain pretty volatile and erratic given the government's commitment to this COVID zero policy, which is going to require more lockdowns in the future, given how transmissible uh, these COVID variants have become. And so China's dealing with this COVID lockdown problem also in the midst of a secular downturn in the property market. So the outlook there is not good, either near term or medium term. And then finally, emerging markets are getting rocked by a surging dollar, by high inflation, and from poor demand from China and other major economies. So you add all this up and it points to weak growth overseas that will probably worsen the growth slowdown in the U.S. and will probably continue to add upward pressure on the dollar. So we're probably looking at an inverted yield curve for the foreseeable future. Is that correct? We're probably looking at a deeply inverted yield curve as the Fed needs to aggressively hike policy, even as growth both at home and abroad slows down. Um, we'll really only get a steepening of the yield curve when the Fed is able to start reducing rates, which again is going to take actual progress on bringing inflation down which probably won't occur until the middle of next year. Thank you so much for your time today, Matt. Uh, please come again and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Matt. Next, we caught up with Justin Takata, head of our investment-grade corporate sector team. Let's listen in. Welcome, Justin, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, no, thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, the big story uh, in all sectors of fixed income is the macro backdrop. Uh, we're all watching the Fed calibrate and recalibrate monetary policy in its response to uh, battle inflation. So what are you watching on that front as it relates to investment grade? I, the main things that I look at as they affect IG are uh, the yield curve shape, uh, terminal rate in treasuries, Fed's balance sheet reduction, and the impact on growth as they try uh, they, meaning the Fed, try to fight inflation. And what we think yield curve shape is going to, uh, how it's going to be affected by Fed policy is really important because as, uh, you know, investment grade credit is, is uh, benchmarked off of U.S. Treasury rates. So that shape of that curve then directly impacts the shape of the credit curve. Um, and so as we see the Fed being uh, more aggressive in their tightening, we're starting to see that flattening of the yield curve and potentially and eventually an inversion and what that does to credit and, and different parts of the curve. So watching that to see where the opportunities are in different scenarios is really important to, to, uh, to get ahead of the curve, uh, no pun intended there. Um, you know, terminal rate in treasuries is also important where we think the Fed is going to stop and where we think that, that say, the 10-year and the 30-year note eventually peak. Um, Fed's balance sheet reduction is really important, I think more so from a liquidity standpoint and how we judge liquidity and investment-grade credit. Um, you know, everything is going to be a trickle-down, right? The Fed eased um, during quantitative easing. They were putting a lot of liquidity in the system, and that was on purpose meant to trickle down into the banks into the financing community and then into the consumer. Well, that's being reversed. So if the Fed's balance sheet is reducing, so are banks' balance sheets, so is liquidity. And so uh, paying attention to how they're calibrating and as you said, recalibrating, it's very important uh, to understand how that dynamic will change the balance sheet reduction, how it trickles through the market 
and how liquidity will be impacted in, in, in this instance in a negative way. Um, and finally, you know, impact on growth, it, it directly goes to the question about recession um, and, and spreads. Corporate spreads tend to react uh, uh, right before a recession and during a recession. Um, but understanding where those impacts of growth are happening and how fast they're happening, I think, is going to give us more of an insight at the subsector level and then eventually at the security selection level on where to be positioned both uh, long and, uh, and short. Moving to broad themes on the supply side, uh, what are you seeing in terms of outstanding supply, issuance, um, you know, maturity wall, um, things like that that might be affecting uh, the market right now? Primary issuance has slowed dramatically, especially in the second quarter. Um, you know, we've seen a couple of banks uh, reduce their forecast for full year primary issuance within IG corporates, but you're looking at an increase in funding costs and volatile markets. And those are really the culprits here. And when you think about an issuer, those are two things that uh, make them very reticent in, um, to, to come to market. No one wants a deal to, to fail or to be perceived as a, as a, as a, a credit of concern. So they always want to come where the funding cost is attractive and the volatility is uh, relatively low. Um, so their deal can price appropriately. Well, right now, uh, again, Fed balance sheet reducing, um, tapering. So funding costs are going up. That's along with rates as well and spreads wider. And we're seeing some pretty dramatic day, you know, intraday moves in rates where we've seen days where the 10 year, uh, you know, peak to trough is 40 basis points intraday. So it's caused issuers to step back from the market, you know, along with, uh, other technicals, uh, we're seeing a, a big reduction in the amount of uh, what we call LME, which is liability management exercises, right? This is when a company likes to either tender for bonds or do an exchange because of attractive funding levels. They, re they can reduce their maturity wall, uh, take out bonds early that may have prohibitive coupons, lower their um, interest expense, et cetera. Well, that given again the rising rates and the volatility and wider spreads this is uh this is a, a much more difficult exercise we've seen the market step back or issuers step back from lme um and and that's really dominated the market for several years now so although it slowed down in the second quarter um, this lme has been great for maturity walls over the last three years, they've continued to extend the duration of their own cap structure. And really what that means is they're taking any uh, near-term maturities and they've refinanced them already over the past few years. So we're sitting in a pretty reasonable spot for investment grade credit as far as a, a very manageable maturity wall uh, coming up in the next year or two, which I think is going to be a positive technical tailwind uh, just a, a follow-up on this question. Uh, we do seem to have uh, the tenure settling into somewhat of a range-bound area, um, which suggests that perhaps the market has you know, found its pricing level near where it expects the Fed to end up. Um, do you think that we might see some more issuance in the third quarter and fourth quarter? You know, it doesn't feel... Uh it doesn't feel as if the pipeline is very robust. Um, I think, again, 
um, even in the second quarter, there was a lot of opportunistic issuance. But going back to 2020 and 21, a lot of the record issuance, Jay, was uh, uh, some of the even the higher quality issuers uh, shoring up their balance sheet in almost a you know rainy day fund or war chest, whatever you want to call it, uh, because liquidity was such a concern during that March 2020 timeframe um, during early COVID. So uh, we enter the year 2022 with a lot of cash on the balance sheet, net debt uh, relatively low on a historical basis. So I think the desire is more to delever than lever, uh, lever up. And so I'm not sure there's a, a huge desire or need really to come to market if you don't need to for some, um, you know, some maturity or some M&A. And so one final point to that is the pipeline of primary issuance due to M&A has also dropped dramatically. And that could then affect what we see in the in Q3 and Q4. What are you seeing in terms of fund flows from the retail market, as well as institutional demand as, you know, yields have risen and, and spreads have gotten a little bit wider? There's a lot of fund flow data out there. And, you know, the theme is clear. It's been negative outflows. And I'll try to break it down a, a little bit as it pertains to the corporate market. But from a 50,000-foot view, the high-grade fund flows at the aggregate level, which really means all of high-grade fixed-income funds, has been pretty abysmal all year, but especially in the second quarter. And it, so as a data point, every week uh, in the second quarter, soft fund outflows. Um, now, juxtaposed to that is where I think we have to break it down a little bit more as it per, uh, pertains to us on the corporate side is the interesting part is that IG corporate only funds, right, funds that can only invest in investment grade corporates, um, they actually have seen net inflows on the year. And even more specifically, the inflows have been in longer duration. The rise in rates has created a lot of discount bonds to par in the longer end of the credit curve. These automatically become more enticing to investors, such as insurance buyers, because it's essentially less dollars at risk when they think about, um, you know, uh, loss given default, et cetera, as they're running their default models. So when you think about fund flows and, and institutional demand, I think institutional demand is looking at that long end of the curve um, and, and seeing it as attractive. And it's a, it's a natural liability match with uh, buying longer duration assets. Um, but buying at a discount is just really like the cherry on top. Um, now, on the flip side, so where are all the outflows coming from? And it's really mainly from mutual funds. Um, they're typically strong buyers of investment grade corporates on a historical basis. But due to this, you know, the steady state of redemptions they've seen since the beginning of the year, they've been sidelined, if not actually, you know, net selling to raise uh, money for liquidity and redemptions. So the, so the demand from this historically support, supportive cohort has really been missing, especially for the second quarter, but really for the first half of the year. Um, all, all that being said, though, Jay, we, we should and need to take the outflows in context, right? Um, you know, broadly, like year-to-date cumulative outflows are around $142 billion, but the cumulative net inflows since 2019 are $513 billion. So we've had a big drawdown on a on a notional level uh, amount. But if you take a step back and you look at it over the last two or three years, it's still not that dramatic. And I think people are still invested. 
you know, all this, the supply, the demand, the macro backdrop, um, this all plays out in, in terms of pricing. Uh, so what are you seeing in terms of yields and spreads, dollar prices? Um, where do we stand now relative to historical levels? I think we're really at an inflection point in, in spreads here. Um, you know, I think historically when you're, when you look back over the last, you know, three decades, we've, whenever we breach this 160 basis point level, and what I mean by uh, 160 bips is when I'm looking at, again, the Bloomberg Barclays corporate index. Whenever we're around this level in the IG corporate index, we typically go wider the subsequent six months. Um, and most of the time that's in like a 175 to 200 range and sometimes even wider plus 200. Um, but I think the important thing to notice here is that we don't stay out at these levels very long right? Typically maybe a quarter. That's the quantitative way to look at it. But again, qualitatively, if you think about when you think about averages, um, you're going to have some type of normal distribution and that occurs here in investment grade. So although I think it bodes for us going wider from here, um, given the macro backdrop we're talking about and some of the micro concerns or fundamental concerns that we're starting to see with earnings and, and growth starting to struggle, I think it's important to, to recognize that uh, we typically won't stay wider for very long. But I think it's, it's so it's potentially an opportunity here. Um, but just when you look at a historical basis, we're kind of right at the middle of the, the, the zone here. And I just think that there's little evidence here to think that we go materially tighter. So we likely, just like historically, go wider from here. Um, the flip side of this coin, though, is, is how high all-in yields have gotten given the rise in rates that we've discussed a couple times already in the discussion, um, we're trading at levels as wide as the beginning of the COVID pandemic in March and April of 2020. Um, about a month ago, the index got into an all-in yield of about 5%. And that was the very, very peak of March, April, 2020. So spreads were much tighter because rates were much lower. But when you think about all-in yield, and again, some of our investor base does look at all-in yield and not just spread, it's still arguably attractive. So we're in a good zone where we've backed up where it's attractive. But I think, again, when you look at historical spread levels, especially going into what we think is a potential recession here, probably some more room to go wider, but overall offering pretty good value. We're hearing a lot of chatter about recession timing now. Um, which of course will have an impact on ratings and default rates. So what is your view on credit fundamentals right now? We're relatively comfortable with, with IG credit right now. Um, default rates remain low. Um, you know, we still have the highest amount of credits on watch for an upgrade over the last 10 years. And that's watch for an upgrade by rating agencies. Um, that being said, right, we're starting to see cracks in that strength, at least from the rating side, we're seeing downgrades pick up at the end of the quarter as a percentage of the gross rating changes. Um, we're also seeing a slowdown in the actual upgrades to downgrades on a net basis. So this is all to say that lower growth and higher inflation is starting to seep through to the credit side. Again, default rates uh, remain low. And as I was saying earlier, right, came coming into the year, with a lot of cash in the balance sheet, 
they were still a lot of tailwinds of EBITDA growth from the COVID reopening, et cetera. So there's reasonably healthy balance sheets. And I think that's what gets us comfortable on a fundamental side with IG credit, right? Balance sheet strength, interest coverage remains high, but you know, higher financing costs and slowdown in growth will negatively impact issuers. But again, I think IG is in a good spot relative to other asset classes to weather that storm, both from a technical and a fundamental basis. Bringing it down to where the rubber meets the road, um, where are you finding value right now in the investment grade market? Well, I've, I've, I've alluded to it uh, pretty clearly a couple times already. So I'll start with you know long duration, low dollar corporate bonds. I still like those, still think that there's value in there, especially for a certain cohort of, of longer term buy and hold investor. Um, the all-in yield plus the discount dollar is going to be attractive to these investors um, for, I think, the foreseeable future. And I think that's, that's setting up for, for a nice technical bid as well. Um, because issuance has been very light in the long end of the curve, and there's not many discount dollar bonds out there, I also like unsecured bank paper. Um, it's been underperforming all year, and the main reason for the underperformance was because of heavy issuance. Now, rates rising so fast hurts everybody because it creates more interest rate volatility. Um, but from a banking perspective, when you think about banks and how their business works, higher rates in general should be positive for their business model. And when you think about unsecured bank paper, they've had a, a massive amount of issuance. So the market was completely flooded um, with issuance and they, uh, they underperformed on a spread basis, but they still have very strong capital ratios and in very healthy positions um, all the way down to the preferred level. I, I'd say finally, um, I really think that preferreds, I mentioned preferreds before, bank preferreds, um, <clears throat> whether it's $25 par retail preferreds or $1,000 par institutional preferreds, um, I think both are attractive here. And again, the reason for the preferred um, attractiveness is capital ratios uh, being very strong <clears throat> all the way down to the preferred level, but also it's a floating rate product. It has a fixed coupon, but then it sets to treasuries plus a fixed rate. So if rates continue to rise, your coupon actually increases, and that can be very attractive um, to, to certain investors. Uh, any industries you are avoiding or that you think are going to do well uh, in the current environment, uh, number one. And number two, in that spectrum between AAA and B, you know, do you have any preference uh, where you sit on there or does it not matter as long as you're getting compensated for different risk levels? You know, I think you bring up a good point right at the end there where it's like, or, is, or if, as long as you're being compensated. I mean, we track the single A, triple B, you know, spread compression, spread relationship uh, pretty intently here. And I think <clears throat> you'd like to buy triple Bs at the, at the wide of the, the spread range and, and sell, you know, and sell at the tight end of the range. But I think you, you have to be a little bit more security and issuer specific there because just because you're rated triple B, doesn't mean that um, you should be thrown in as is how it relates to a single A. I tend to hesitate to say, well, let's just go up in quality because 
I think that automatically means rating. And I think it just, that's where you really have to put pen to paper and do some, some deeper credit work um, and, and find out where those, those good credits are. Um, you know, from a, from a sector perspective, I mean, you know, as we roll in towards a recession here, I think you have to be cautious in some of the retail and hospitality uh, type names. But again, um, on the hospitality side, they were challenged deeply and quickly with COVID and brought down their uh, cost structures quite a bit and were able to finance and have, uh, you know, good liquidity and cash on the balance sheet. So again, I think IG credit broadly is set up um, well for, for a little bit of a shock to growth here, hopefully not too large of a shock, but the balance sheet should help weather the storm relative to other asset classes. And again, I think it comes down to more security selection. I think IG corporate credit is positioned uh, to perform well on a relative basis uh, to equities over the next six to nine months. Um, I think IG corporate has gone through the majority of the pain that it's going to. When you think about rate movement, if we are getting some, some stability in rates, um, you know, I, I think it, the majority of the pain ha, has been taken. So as the market turns and wants to become invested, so you've got to really scale into positions these days because liquidity in general, whether it's a bullish or bearish market, is not going to be as robust as it was, say, 10 years ago. So we have to really be cognizant about not only when uh, we put money to work, but how we put it to work and at what pace. Justin, thank you so much for... Uh for sharing your perspective. Uh, it's really a unique insight. Um, thanks again for your time and uh, please come again and visit with us soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks, Justin Takata. We'll close today with a listener question. Our question comes from listener Ann in New York City, who had a question for portfolio manager Adam Block, who in episode 17 of Macro Markets discussed fixed income and retirement accounts. And asked, you mentioned downside capture is a metric for evaluating a fund. I do not often hear managers highlight this factor. Why is it important? Now, for those who don't know what downside capture is, let me start with a brief definition. The upside capture and downside capture ratio shows whether a fund outperforms its benchmark during periods of market strength or weakness. Downside capture is calculated by dividing a fund's monthly return during periods when the benchmark's monthly return is negative. A downside capture ratio of less than 100% means that the fund has lost less than the benchmark during the period. Here is Adam's answer. He said, We believe that over the long term, the best way to make money is by not losing it. Negative performance has, of course, the obvious effect of losing money, but the double whammy is that it also leaves you with less capital to invest to recoup those losses. We focus on downside protection when investing in credit so we don't find ourselves having to dig out of a hole in a down market. Thanks, Adam, for providing your answer, and thank you, Anne, for asking us your question. Now, again, if you have any questions for our podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them, either on air, on a future episode, or offline. 
Thanks once again to Matt Bush and Justin Takata, and to all of you who've joined us for our podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Partners Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim